The simplest way I know how to explain it is that, um, that God's great desire is to draw all humanity to himself. Everyone. There, there isn't a person on this, this, this earth, on this planet, that God isn't attempting to draw to him. And because of sin, we've all strayed from God. Yet through the grace and blood of his son, Jesus Christ, God has made a way for all of us to return to him. This is the good news. This is the gospel. God's heartbeat, his number one desire, his plan for the beginning was for you to be with him. And we believe that his plan is our mission. The life mission of every Christian is to grow followers of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. It's not the mission of, of just theologians or scholars, but a mission of every single one of us. And this is the shift that, that we're stepping into in this series. It, it Really, this year, really, I believe this is the place that, that the position that God has brought us to as a church, for each of us to embrace this task of drawing those who are far from God and bringing them near. This is our life mission. It is the reason we are here and it is only capable, we're only capable of doing this through the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. So, as we've entered into this series about, uh, maybe you call it the Great Commission or discipleship or witnessing or whatever language you want to use, one of the things we've, we've recognized a need for is a need for more conversation. Uh, especially, we have some people in our, in our midst that have no church background. And so the idea of discipleship is a mystery. And we have people, some, some people in our, our midst that have been to church every single day. They remember church like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know what I'm talking about. And, and even for them, they agree with and know what discipleship is. But the practicality of how do I do that has never been, been instilled in them. They've never been taught, how do I make disciples? I know I'm supposed to, but it's been kind of become the, the elephant in the room of, of how do we get around. So the need for conversation has become really important. And so what I want to do now is uh, I'm just going to give you five minutes to enter into this conversation. So this actually means you're going to have to move. Don't, let's not leave anybody out. There's no, like, this is the, not the cool table. This is not the nerd table. Um, <clears throat> that's not how this works. I want you to literally just move and gather around with those with you. And I'm going to set the timer on my phone. I'm going to give you five minutes. And I want you to enter into this discussion, this conversation about discipleship. And here's the primer for today. Here's the question. And the question is, who discipled you? Who is the one, uh, the person that, that made a difference in your faith life? Who, who taught you or, or who is teaching you right now how to live like Jesus? Remember, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. So to be a student, you must have a teacher. And so we have Jesus as our example, our teacher. But there are others. Who has discipled you and how? All right, so I'm going to set the timer on my phone. You know what you're supposed to do. If you see someone sitting by themselves, go to them, go to that person, invite them into the circle. Here's the questions to ask. All right, I'm setting my phone. Are you ready? On your mark, get set, go. Like I challenge you to, to keep these conversations going, uh, even, even outside, of, outside of this space. Like I said, as we lean deeper and deeper into this life on mission, it's so important that we encourage and challenge each other and, and share, share our struggles because being a learner, being a student of Jesus is not easy, but it's also something that is nev was never intended for you to do on your own. 
And so challenge you to keep entering these conversations, keep coming up with, with deeper and deeper questions. Um, in Luke chapter 10, the good doctor tells a story. Uh, that it's the only place in the New Testament where this story is told. It's the story of a lawyer. And uh, uh, this lawyer comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, uh, the true rabbi of rabbis, uh, never answers a question with an answer, but answers a question with a question. And so Jesus says to the lawyer, well, you are a, a, a very uh, sharp whippersnapper. <clears throat> what do you think? And the lawyer's ready. And he gives the perfect reply. The lawyer goes immediately to what the, the, the Jews called the Shema. It, it was the, the center of the Jewish faith. And so the lawyer quotes the great Shema, this great prayer. And the lawyer says, well, we must love the Lord, our God, with, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, all of our mind, and we must love our neighbors as, as ourselves." You know this lawyer's really keen because the, that love your neighbor part comes deep, buried deep from within Leviticus. So this guy's study. He knows his stuff. And Jesus, maybe the only place in Scripture, Jesus says, you got it. You're, you're absolutely right. And the lawyer should have just walked away, but he cannot control himself. So he presses the issue. He presses a little bit deeper and he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus begins to tell a parable, and the guy should know he's in trouble already. When Jesus starts telling you stories, you're in trouble. And Jesus says, once upon a time, there was this Jewish man, and he was, on, he was traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is literally a city on the hill, and Jericho is near the Dead Sea, and it's only about 17 miles away, but in those 17 miles, the, the elevation changes. It drops between Jerusalem and Jericho more than 3,000 feet. It is this, uh, this winding kind of switchback, rocky trail, and it is the place where bad people are known to hide. There's lots of good rocks and things to hide behind. It was actually even referred to, this path from Jerusalem to Jericho was referred to as the Red Way or the Bloody Way. It is a, play, it is a road you would never travel without protection. And when Jesus mentioned this path, mentioned that he, this man, this Jewish man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, everyone around him said, oh yeah, I know that road. I know that place. And uh, lo and behold, this Jewish man on this road, on the Red Way, is attacked by bandits. He, he is beaten, stripped of all of his clothes, and left half dead. And while he's laying there on the bloody way, three men pass by. You remember this story? The first man is a priest, followed immediately by a Levite. Both the priest and Levites uh, worked in the temple in Jerusalem, and it wouldn't have been uncommon for them at all to, to reside in Jericho and, and essentially commute to work in Jerusalem. Their, their roles in the temple would have lasted probably a couple of weeks at a time, and then they would commute back to Jericho to see their families, spend time with their families. And, and these two men, 
The first one, the priest sees this man naked and bleeding and, and half dead, and the priest passes on the other side of the road and keeps going. The Levite at least hesitates, and you get this scene in, from Scripture that the Levite kind of walks over, kind of peeks at the man, and then carries on his way. And I don't want you to think that, that these guys are necessarily totally heartless. Maybe they are just cautious. It wouldn't have been uncommon for bandits or, or road ruffians and robbers. It wouldn't have been uncommon for them to, to uh, stage someone, to, to have someone, uh, to place someone as, as a decoy along the road to draw your attention. And then the rest of the band jumps out from behind. So maybe the men were just being cautious. But more likely, the emphasis, the emphasis of this story is that uh, it, it really plays to Jewish taboos. You see, without the clothes on, the men wouldn't have been able to recognize if this man was a Jewish man or a Gentile man or where he was from. Your clothes represented a little bit of your identity. And if it was a Jewish man, they would have, if they would have known it was a Jewish man, by law, they were, they, were, they were told to take care of a Jewish man. But if it was a Gentile, there's a whole other different set of rules. In fact, even in some of the, some of the other older Jewish writings, there's this example of if a wall collapses on men and it's on the Sabbath, you are supposed to pull away just enough stones to determine who the men are, to determine if they're Jewish or if they're Gentile. And if, because it's the Sabbath and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, if it's a Jewish man and the wall collapsed on him, it's okay to go ahead and dig them out and bury them out. But if a Gentile, guess what? Leave them. So there were all of these taboos between outsiders, but there's another issue that's going on here, and that scripture says that the man is left half dead. Now the priest and the Levite, they work in the temple, and so that means they, they go through ritual purification, and they're not to have any contact with anything that's unclean, like a corpse or a dead body. And maybe they couldn't tell, maybe they didn't want to take the chance, but if a priest or a Levite, they touch a dead body, guess what they become? They become unclean for a period of seven days. They have to go through a whole ritual of cleansing, and in that time, they have to be outside of the temple. They wouldn't be able to fulfill their duties. They wouldn't be, be able to work, and if they're not able to work, guess who doesn't get paid? So if they come over, if they happen to touch this guy, and he is dead... What's that mean for their families? Are they going to eat this week? So they find themselves in this conundrum, this situation. And so, like so many do, they choose, well, it's better to be safe than sorry. And they pass by. And then a third man comes along the road. And we refer to him most frequently as the Good Samaritan. Now, Good Samaritan, at least in the Jewish mind, is an oxymoron, like a seriously funny jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, or country music. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. You see, for the Jews, especially around Jerusalem, uh, there was a feud between Jews and Samaritans, much like the Hatfields and the McCoys. It all started in the northern kingdom. The Jews who lived in the northern kingdom lived in this area called Samaria. 
And at one point in time, the northern kingdom is invaded by an outside force, an outside country, an outside government. And the Jews of Samaria who are invaded actually intermarry with these outsiders. They intermarry with these invaders. And the Jews from the southern kingdom, the Jews from Jerusalem, this is an unforgivable sin. And so the Samaritans are barred from entering the temple in Jerusalem. They're barred from, from having any contact with the southern kingdom Jews. Really, they become, a, and so the Samaritans become their, almost their own sect uh, of Judaism. They actually create their own holy mountain. The Samaritans build their own holy temple. They have their own translations of Torah. They even have their own priests. And when an army from Assyria comes to attack Jerusalem, comes to attack the southern kingdom Jews, who helps them? The Samaritans. And when the Assyrians and the Samaritans that come in and they wipe out the city of Jerusalem, it is the Samaritans who enter the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And what do they drag into the temple? Can you imagine? Corpses into the Holy of Holies, the Samaritans drag dead bodies, which you already know makes the space what? Unclean. It is unclean for Passover, and it is an unforgivable sin. And I want you to know, in the Jewish mind, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. Are you with me? And in Scripture, in Luke calls the man a despised Samaritan. Samaritans were despised. That's why when Jesus, other examples, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, or, or when Jesus says in the first chapter of Acts, says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. When Jesus does these things, it's a big deal, and it got lots and lots of attention. Yet it is the Samaritan, when, and when Jesus mentions the Samaritan coming along, the Jews sitting in that circle instantly thought, all right, the villain has stepped on the stage. But Jesus flips the script, and it is this Samaritan who, look at the verse 33, says, the despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt, what's the word? Compassion for him. Remember that word, compassion. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. And in Jesus' telling, it's the Samaritan who soothes the wounds of the Jewish man, rubbing oil and wine on them. He wraps the Samaritan, he wraps the, I'm sorry, the Samaritan wraps the, the injured half-dead man in his own clothes, places him on his own donkey, leads him to an inn, and then pays for his future care there. Why? It's that one word, compassion. Sometimes this word is, uh, is translated mercy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conjunction of two words. Calm means with. Passion means to fill suffering. It, it literally, compassion means to fill suffering with someone else. And in the Jewish mind, this, this feeling, that, that, that deep feeling of, of emotions uh, uh, comes, from, comes from this place right here. It comes from, comes from your stomach. It, it comes from your gut. 
Have you ever had that experience that, that it is such a powerful experience of emotion that it hurts? Have you ever had that? That, that it, it, it doubles you over because your, your, your stomach hurts. And scripture says, literally, the Samaritan's stomach hurt. It, Winnie the Pooh would say he had a rumbly in the tumbly. You know what I'm talking about? And it is this pain, this feeling, this such a deep feeling of, of, of hurt that you are moved to action. Feeling so deeply, you can't, just, you can't just stomach it. You can't just deal with it. But feeling so intensely that you have to do something about it. I recently heard a teaching from a man named uh, K.P. Yohannan. He does a, a tremendous ministry to, to India and Asia. He, he's, it's this incredible, incredible guy. And he tells the story of growing up in India. And while he was in India... He would walk down the streets and he said, I would just begin to cry because I would see people who were, were poor and see people who were homeless, but mostly I would see people going into temples and worshiping these false gods, worshiping these pagan ideas. And, and he said, as I was walking down the streets of India, he said, even as a young boy, he said, tears would pour down my face because these men and women would go to hell. They wouldn't know Jesus. And he said, as I walked down the streets, I would just cry for people. He said, I would just absolutely weep for people who did not know Jesus. I was so overwhelmed that it, that it just came pouring out of me. And K.P. Yohannan would eventually, because of his ministry, it would, it would bring him to America. He wanted to go to seminary and learn more about Scripture. And, and he said he came to America and he, and he got plugged into a great Christian school and he learned all about Hebrew and, and, and Greek. He learned uh, so much about the Bible and ministry. But in the midst of everything that he learned coming to America, the one thing he forgot was he forgot how to cry. He forgot. In the midst of learning all of this great biblical knowledge, he forgot how to feel for those who don't know Jesus. So, uncomfortable question. When was the last time you cried? I'm horrible at this. My wife knows. She's seen me cry, maybe. I'm going to hold to only once in our whole marriage, maybe. And that's when I, I broke a limb or something. I don't know. I'm not good at it. When was the last time you cried because of someone else's pain? When was the last time you cried because of someone else's plight? When was the last time you cried for those whom you know that don't know Jesus? When was the last time you felt compassion? When was the last time that, that your, your gut was moved, like, like your gut was just wrenched for someone else. How many of you would have stopped to help the man on the road? Yeah, we're all Good Samaritans now, right? <laughs> of course I would.
Have you become numb? Have you ever thought about if, um, if Jesus was here today and watched our newscast? How would he respond? I've become numb. I just kind of watch it, right? Like, like I watch it and then I get depressed by it and I turn it off or, or I watch it and then I just go on. Like I, I, I see horrible, tragic things. I see pain in other people's life. But it, it almost gets to this point that it's so overwhelming that I just choose to just, I just put it somewhere else. Does that make sense? And, and it, it, happens, it happens without us knowing. But there is, there is a numbness in, in our society. There is a numbness in our culture that, that I think we need to address. Have you seen churches become numb? One of the things um, we do at Aspen Grove is we seek to grow followers of Jesus Christ through worship community is this idea of service. And so occasionally we create opportunities for, for you to serve, like we'll, even, we'll set it up. And so we've done these awesome service things at GraceWorks. I, I think most recently we did, a, we did a thing for kids where you could shop with, with, with parents and get Christmas gifts for kids. Uh, we created these awesome service projects. Occasionally, we'll, we'll do things with Nashville Rescue Mission. We, we've done a couple of other things. We believe that as a church, we're, we're called to serve. And, and in doing all of these things, there's a, a, there's, a, there's a disturbing trend that's been happening. And that trend is that we'll create these opportunities to serve, these opportunities to, to step into other people's lives in, in a tangible way. Um, but the disturbing trend is that we see the same people coming almost every time. There's a core of you that, that resonate with this idea of service, and, and, and they, they come a lot, but then there's some of you that have never come. We've had, we've had multiple service opportunities at different times, and, and some of you haven't come and I'm nervous to even interject or, or to pressure you or, or to offer some sort of conjecture of why you haven't come. Um, maybe your reasoning would sound very familiar to the reasoning of the priest and the Levite. But I'm worried that in our world, in, 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 our, in our culture, in our society, to show compassion, to feel deeply for others has become an interruption. It doesn't fit in with our schedule. It's, it's, it's not on your planner or agenda. You simply don't have time for others. And I think this idea of compassion, this, this language, the challenge that even Jesus delivers in this story, this idea of compassion, of serving others, is a direct challenge to the busyness of our lives. How many of you are busy? How many of you, the first time somebody asks you, how's your week been, the first thing you say is, well, it's been really busy? Do you catch yourself in this? But, but I think it's a great lie in, a, in America. We call it busyness, but let's just call it what it is because I think it's actually called selfishness. And we are hiding behind our schedules. 
Because we don't have time for others. Because my time is about my priorities and you simply don't fit in. Maybe the great enemy of the North American church is busyness. And Jesus offers this completely radical teaching. And we believe that the the mission critical to being a follower of Jesus Christ is not just memorizing what he said. Being a follower of Jesus Christ isn't just even doing what he did But to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must feel what Jesus felt. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so we must engage that part of us again that has become numb. We must become men and women who feel. Look what Jesus, the example of Jesus in Matthew 9, chapter 4. Chapter 9, verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had, what's the word? Gut-wrenching, bent over, feeling on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the question becomes, if we have lost it, if our guts have become numb, if we've lost that feeling For others, how do we get it back? And I think the answer is, it starts with your neighbor. You remember the question, the lawyer's question, where did this great parable begin? Where did it start? Remember the lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? It's the reason Jesus tells this parable. Who is my neighbor? And at the end of this telling After the Samaritan has cared for the man in every possible way, Jesus comes back to this in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and verses 37. Jesus comes back after telling the story, steps back out of the story and looks at the lawyer and says, now which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the lawyer replied, The one who showed him mercy. The word is also translated compassion. The one who showed him compassion. And Jesus' instruction is, now go and do the same. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And I'm going to give you one last challenge as they're coming up. I know as we move into this idea of discipleship, lots of you have said, I just don't don't know how to share my faith. I don't, know, I don't know how to start a conversation about Jesus. I, I, don't, I, I, I haven't baptized anyone this week, right? And so as we move into this, this, this idea of discipleship, of learners, of, of stepping into this, we recognize that following Jesus requires baby steps. And so the next baby step for you and I and for this church comes in the way of hospitality challenge number two. Are you ready? Hospitality challenge number one was for you to invite someone from this church into your home, to bring them in, to not do anything special, but to just bring others into your home. Now, hospitality challenge number two, straight out of the the story of the Good Samaritan, over the next 30 days, 
your challenge is to love your neighbor. Three words. Love your neighbor. Sounds like a teaching of Jesus, right? And this has really two parts as you dissect it. I know it's only three words. But the first part is, who is my neighbor? And I'm going to make this really, really easy for you. Uh, your neighbor is the person who lives next to you. Okay? Uh, I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She said, I want you to be concerned about your next door neighbor. And then she asked the question, do you know your next door neighbor? Before you can love your neighbor in the next 30 days, you're going to have to introduce yourself to them. Right? You're going to actually have to know them. You're going to actually have to know their name. So, so literally, what I want to have happen in the next 30 days, and we'll talk about the love part in just a second, but as you focus your attention on your neighbor, as you focus even this part of yourself on your neighbor, uh, you actually have to know them. And I, and I mean literally your address. Literally, literally the, the person uh, across the street, and maybe some of you live at a farm, you're going to have to walk across the pasture to get to your neighbor. But you have one. You have a couple. I know you do. Maybe it's even, uh, I, I wanted to focus on your address, but if it's not there, maybe it's the cubicle next to yours, okay? The office next to yours. Literally the people that you are around all the time. That's where this next emphasis comes from. And what I want you to do, I use the word love, but, but we're, we're, we're going to baby step that down even. Love is too difficult. So, so what I want you to think about is um, showing kindness to your neighbor. Like, I don't, I, if you told me to love my neighbor, I wouldn't know exactly how to do that. Of course, I would say, of course I love my neighbor. But if you tell me, I want you to show kindness to your neighbor, now that's a do, right? Do you see how that works? Uh, I want you to, to serve your neighbor in, 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 in some way. Introduce yourself. What can I do for you? And maybe they're going to tell you nothing. And so then your challenge is to pay attention to them, to, to pay attention to their schedule and their life. What is some, something they need? What is some way that you can serve them? So if love your neighbor is too complicated, the, the simplified version is do stuff for your neighbor in the next 30 days. Can you do that? Do stuff for your neighbor. It is maybe to bake cookies. For, for your neighbor or your office mate who's having a tough week, uh, cook a meal and deliver it. Change, ch offer to change the oil. If you don't know how to change oil, don't do that. Um, pick something else. Um, maybe your, your neighbor works too much. Take them a dessert or a meal. Invite them onto your, your back patio for just a break. Maybe if your neighbor works too much, if golf's your thing, take them to play golf. Volunteer to, to babysit. If your neighbor is consumed with busyness and they have kids, say, hey, why don't you let us watch your kids and you, you and your wife go out to dinner? Maybe, maybe you know someone that's, maybe your neighbor's struggling in their marriage. Maybe they're, they're having financial issues. How can, you, how can you step in and do stuff for them? Clean out the flower beds for, for the single lady that, that lives across the street from you and then, then sit on the porch and have lemonade. 
You know what will happen? God's kingdom will come and land right there. Break leaves, cut grass, and invite them just to go for a walk. Do stuff for your neighbor when you introduce yourself to them. And it may be awkward because you may have lived next to this person for a really long time, which is hilarious and awesome. But just entered into that awkwardness. It's okay. And then maybe, maybe if you feel really brave, ask them, hey, how can I help? Is there anything that I can do for you? And they're going to be really thrown off by this. They're not going to know what to say. But just tell them, it's okay. Is there anything I can do to help? Serve others. Do stuff for your neighbors in a way that is practical. Do stuff for someone else who lives next to you in, in a way that's, that's meaningful. But do stuff in a, in a way that, that's winsome and fun and attractive. It doesn't have to be awkward and weird. I love one of the, the messages out of the Life on Mission small group series is just be normal. Be normal in the way that you approach others. So hospitality challenge number two. You got 30 days to love your neighbor, to do stuff for your neighbor, literally the person next door to you. And when you do that, they will know that they are your neighbor. They will know that now, maybe they didn't before, but now in this area, you will see them as valuable, as important. And my prayer is that that part of us that just kind of goes through life without looking, without stopping, without blinking, will grow in compassion. My guess is that as you step into this this week, as you step into this over the next 30 days, uh, God's going to create some pretty interesting opportunities for you. I believe that God honors our availability. When we say, God, I'm available for you to use, uh, <laughs> and get ready. He's going to use you. Any question about uh, what hospitality challenge number two is? Let me say a quick prayer for us, and then we're going to sing a song. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for the, the practical ways that you teach us. God, you are so good and so generous to us. And God, help us to realize that for each and every one of us, you have that, that gut feeling. That, that you want for us so desperately to be near you. And Father God, as we enter into being your disciples, as we seek to be followers of you, let our guts be stirred. Let us grow in, in, in not just doing the things that your son taught and said, but let us feel like he felt. Literally for, for the people right next to us. Let us open our eyes, let us remove the blinders that, that, are, that are on our lives, the blinders that are on our lives that keep us so focused on self, and let us consider others with love and compassion. Father God, as we enter into this, I, I pray that you would just create incredible opportunities. Opportunities for us to serve and to nurture, to, to be your hands and feet in, in our neighborhoods. Father God, we love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,
We're going to sing a song, and as we do that, we want to create an opportunity for you to pray. Maybe, uh, maybe you want to say, hey, I'm ready to plant my flag at Aspen Grove like the boards did, praise God. Or, or maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ and, and be baptized. We're here for that too. But, but if there's anything that is happening in your life that, that we can encourage or pray for you for, we want that opportunity. So I'm just going to move to the back as we stand and sing. If we can serve you or pray for you in any way, I'll uh, meet you there. Why don't you stand as we sing together?